Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. Tonight, we are honored to have with us Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvia Terra. My pronunciation needs a little work, but we are honored to have her with us. Her accolades are over a mile long. So let me just tell you that she is a pastor. She comes, she has over 30 years experience working with justice, advocating for asylum seekers, for immigrants, not only from our southern borders, but from many places in our world. And we are just so honored that she will join us and bring some knowledge. I think this is time where so many of us are in desperate need of more information. Pastor Alexia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. So we were we were talking beforehand, and, and I was telling Becca and then Alexia when she joined us, um, I've been spending time on the website, Matthew25SoCal.org. It's a website for the Matthew25 organization that uh, Alexia is part of. And as I was exploring it, um, a picture kind of flashed along the back of the screen. It's like a, it's like a rotating background picture that just shows some of the, um, some of the events, some of the rallies, um, kind of organizing events, uh, protests, and things like that, that Matthew25 has been a part of. And all of a sudden, completely unexpectedly, uh, I see a picture of myself. And <laughs> a little context for that is two summers ago, summer of 2017, I was in Los Angeles uh, for seminary, for school. I go to the Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm part of a program uh, called the Master of Arts in Global Leadership. It's kind of a intercultural studies, intercultural theology degree. And part of our study for that uh, for that class was to go into downtown Los Angeles and see uh, and look at some of the ministry uh, that's happening in those spaces. And it just so happened that in that same time period, and Alexia, I'm going to need you to remind me of his name again. It was Reverend Noe. Dr. Noe Carias. Yes. And so he had been detained and was actually still detained at the time. I believe that story had a, a happy-ish ending. Relative. So far, he was released, uh, and it was a, it was a mirac- definitely a miraculous release, mm. and a miracle that is both incarnate and transcendent. Mm. And he's still fighting. He's still the release just allows him to keep fighting his case. Really? Okay. Okay. The point, though, is that that was two years ago, and so I think for many of us, we are kind of maybe coming awake to. Uh, some of the the issues and injustices that are taking place at our southern border uh, and as it relates to just the detention, the concentration camps that have been uh, set up there and the ice raids that we continue to hear about. But as that little anecdote can attest, and really as Alexia, I'm sure, will tell us, this isn't new. These These are challenges and injustices that have been going on for the entire Trump administration and in many cases I have preceded and have you know been going on far before uh, Trump even uh, came into the presidency and so we kind of thought we would start there Alexia just kind of uh, giving you space to give us some some context not only on the depth of some of this uh, some of these challenges that we're talking about but the breadth of it as well and just kind of how long this has been an issue that you have been deeply, deeply invested in advocating. Sure. I've been working with immigrants and our immigration system for about 40 years. So Mm. I have seen the current crisis and I have seen the acute crisis. Mm. Overall, we have a system that is ineffective and most people in our country know that, you know, even if you're wherever you are politically, yeah. you know that the system doesn't work. Uh, but what yeah. you don't know until you get closer is that it's illogical, mm-hmm. that it makes the DMV and the IRS look positively sane. <laughs> in and, it's, and it's unjust and it's inhumane. And you just have to really know it to begin to realize that. And it, you know, it's, it gets a little better and it gets a little worse and a little better and a little worse, but overall it gets worse mm-hmm. over time my experience of the last 40 years, mm. and I can tell more about why I think that's true. And then, of course, since this administration came in, 
this administration is unique and unprecedented in its ferocity mm. against immigrants. And I mean immigrants of all kinds. There have been over 200 regulatory changes and all of them anti-immigrant. Mm. Um, wow. Let me give you a very tiny example, just because mm-hmm. it shows you how wholesale it is. Yeah. In the mission statement of USCIS, which is there's USCIS and ICE in the Department of Homeland Security. And USCIS is supposed to help people enter the country who are legally qualified. Um, there was a line in the mission statement that said nation of immigrants, and they took it out. That was one of the regulatory oh, changes. Wow. <laughs> wow. So it's yeah. just, it's really, really wholesale. Um, I mean, they've slowed down. They've slowed down the processes for bringing your wife or husband if you fall in love and marry someone from another country. Oh, I mean, gosh. on every level, not to mention just a wholesale attack against asylum seekers. Why do you think, uh, you know, it's been on the radar to some degree for years, but why, do you, where's the veracity? Like what, I mean, obviously we have a person in the White House who is not of a mental caliber I'm just just not of a, a mental caliber that all of us would expect that person in the White House to be. Why this administration? What has broke that levy of just horrific? I mean, I don't know what else to say, but hate. No, it, it is. It's incredible. I mean, I, I would like to say, first of all, I want to preface this by saying that I have worked with Democratic and Republican administrations. Mm-hmm. Every administration has advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. This is not any administration. This is completely different. Mm -hmm. And I think I understand it in three ways. Okay. I understand that the fundamental perspective of this administration is that we don't win together and we win over. Mm -hmm. Right. It's um, that that we, that make America great again is Mm -hmm. really all about let's not collaborate internationally. We only lose by collaboration. Mm -hmm. We win by by, collaboration. fighting for ourselves over against the other. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a fundamental perspective that they have. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking yeah. about international problems like ISIS, like the Mara Salvatrucha, you know, the most mm-hmm. um, powerful international mm-hmm. organized crime syndicate in the history of the world, mm-hmm. you know, you, you don't solve these problems unilaterally. You solve them multilaterally. And this administration doesn't mm-hmm. believe in that. Um, and they tend, what goes with that is just a sort of knee-jerk um, perception of the other as a threat. Mm-hmm. Instead of seeing yeah. that the other may bring blessings, mm-hmm. may bring contributions. So I think that all of that is connected. Um, I also think that there are key people in the administration who are like Stephen Miller, mm-hmm. who are sophisticated about mm-hmm. the system and are really um, fanatic about destroying the mm-hmm. possibility of immigrants to enter the mm-hmm. country. So, you know, there there's a recent proposal to we accepted about 150,000 refugees a year for many years under both Democratic and Republican yeah, administrations. Yeah. That was sort of our share mm-hmm. of the world commitment. You know, most countries in the world in 1948 made a commitment to accept refugees, to accept people fleeing at yeah. the end of World mm-hmm. War II, to accept people fleeing violent persecution in their home countries as a result of their race, their religion, their political opinion, or their membership in a specific societal, right? So we all signed the same document, Universal Declaration mm-hmm. of Human Rights in 19- And then since then, we've sort of split up how many we'll take. And the U.S. has consistently taken 150,000 refugees Um, and then a certain number of asylum seekers, which has risen and fallen over time. Asylum seekers are refugees. Mm -hmm. It's the same exact category. It's just whether you ask for Mm -hmm. it in a a safe third country or whether you ask for it at the border. That's all. Mm, It's the same exact criteria. So this year, from January to July, we've accepted 12,000. And the Projections for July to December is 6,000, and then their um, proposal for next year is zero. So I've talked to somebody from an international refugee resettlement organization who says, we just, how will we, how will we internationally make up for the hole in Mm 100,000 people when, you know, when we have migration all over the world um, connected to global warming, which is new, Mm -hmm. but, you know, connected to what migration has always been connected to the vast majority of people don't want to leave their home country. They leave because they're either starving or they're persecuted. Mm. You know, there's maybe people estimate that at about 10% are people who have a dream. Mm. You know, and those yeah. people are sort of the, the American ideal, right? <laughs> that we want people from all over the world with these big dreams and passion and energy and discipline to come to the U.S., right? And that, you know, people come because of real problems at home. And that's why uh, international policy and immigration are just very linked no matter what you do. 
because our international policy decisions either provoke more refugees or or help to solve the problem. So one of the things that most people don't realize, just for example, is that the asylum crisis in Central America has been intensified by our current administration, that it's been going mm-hmm. on for a while mm-hmm. and it got much worse in 2014. The Obama administration worked with an international collaboration and in 2015, the numbers dropped by about half because we were working internationally on issues of development and mm-hmm. security and it helped the situation. Mm-hmm. And we also they also started working on a refugee center in Costa Rica, which does have the criteria yeah. to be qualified as a third country, a safe third country. Right now, this administration does uh, signed a pact with Guatemala that they would be a safe country. It's absolutely insane. We have evidence of human rights abuses in Guatemala, the exact kind of human rights abuses that, that create credible mm-hmm. asylum cases, that you can't make it a safe third country. It's not it's not approved by the United Nations. It doesn't mean any of the criteria. It's only their way of, of stopping right. immigration. But, <laughs> but they could have stopped it the way that the Obama administration did. They could have lowered it through collaboration around solving the problem. They could have could have lowered it by having a refugee center in Costa Rica, but they didn't want to do that. They 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 actually want perception of hordes of people coming. Mm. Um, they've also another way in which I know that that's true. We used to process three hundred mm-hmm. people a day at the southern border. That was the that's our capacity. Processing doesn't mean letting in. Processing means getting them through the initial test to see whether or not they can enter into a more extended processing or whether. They need to be deported. Okay. So we always deported people pretty quickly if they didn't pass a credible fear test. And then we would allow them into a process that might take six months to a year to vet whether or not. And if they didn't meet the standards, they were deported. That's how it worked. About 300 300 people started the processing a day. Mm -hmm. Now we have a metered system that allows about 20 people to do it every day. So what it does is it creates automatic crowds at the border, Mm -hmm. which is really advantageous to this administration. Because they're really trying to whip up fear and hatred because it really works for them in terms of people that are passionately in support of them. So, but they have actually very cynically made the crisis much worse um, by their treatment. And every policy, every public policy that they've announced to try to stop the people from coming is all about, not necessarily even about realistically being able to stop people, it's about looking like they are defending the country against invaders. And that's that perception is what matters to them, from my perspective. So just to be absolutely clear, uh, there is a high degree of theater going on here. This isn't merely, you know, a lot of the issues that we're hearing about and that we're seeing, it's a... When I say fabricated, I don't want to. I don't want to say that to make light of the crisis because there's a lot going on. But but a lot of what we're seeing, as far as the masses and the rhetoric and the narrative and stuff like that, that's intentional theater on the part of the administration to create a narrative wherein, like you said, they are defending the country to use Trump's word, an invasion. And you know, the truth is that the problems going on in Central America have a very long history and that we have played Mm -hmm. a role in that history as a country. Mm -hmm. I am not denying the problems in Central America, nor am I denying that the asylum system needs to be reformed because Mm -hmm. it's just, like I said, the whole system needs to be reformed. It's not well done. Mm -hmm. A lot of, it's a patchwork of little laws some of which make much more sense than others. But we have had two, count them two, completely bipartisan immigration reform proposals that are multi-level, that would take care of most of these, that would reform the asylum system, mm-hmm. among, yeah. among our other systems. And uh, and we, when we run those by the average American, we get about 75% support. Which is huge. I mean, they're not open borders. They're, they're proposals for a sane system, um, and people like them. But they don't care enough to call. Mm-hmm. The only people who have passion to call. And of course, immigrants, we do care. I mean, I'm not an immigrant, but I care about immigrants and immigrants and their allies. We really care, but we don't necessarily have the hope to call. We know we're a minority. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you lack hope and passion, who calls? Only the people who are passionately against. And therefore it becomes, there's no political will for fixing the system. So I believe the system has to be fixed. I believe that the horror story unfolding in Central America with the Mara Sabatrucha needs an effective and humanitarian response. Um, I do think that those responses are possible mm-hmm. and they're bipartisan. It's really just this administration, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so uh, the last proposal in 2013 was done by something called the Gang Bait for Republicans for Democrats. It was the best immigration legislation I've seen in 30 years. Mm-hmm. And there were lots of things I didn't like about it, but that, you know, it was, it was a compromise, but it would have solved it in most of the problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't pass it. 
Um, we got really close. We got, and the church actually had a really important role to play in how close we got. We passed the Senate, but the, and we would have passed the House. Mm-hmm. We had enough Republican and Democratic votes to pass the House, mm-hmm. but yeah. um, the Speaker of the House wouldn't take it to the floor because some of the people in the Republican Party said that they would split the party if he did. Because they, they were, you know, they were a far seeing and they saw what could be done. They saw what Trump ultimately did to build up a wave of support for the party. And so they wouldn't do it because we really almost went. I felt like Moses looking into the promised land and having to back in. But so I don't I don't deny problems. Mm. I don't think this administration mm-hmm. created the problems. I do think that they are making the problem much worse and that they are going to solve it. And all they're doing is causing people who are fleeing for their lives to children, young people, women. They're causing people to go through horrific suffering that is unjust and unnecessary. Mm. So this current administration, what we're seeing is there is a good portion of the evangelical church backing this administration. And then when it comes to Matthew 25 and the church taking care of those who are seeking asylum and who are poor and who are hungry, where, I mean, I can give my opinion, but I'm curious to know yours, where has the church completely lost sight of what's biblical? So so let me say that First of all, I want to say that in 2007, 83% of white evangelicals were against immigration reform. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. when you actually, like I said, when you actually ran the legislative proposals by them, you know, vast numbers were for it. They Mm -hmm. just didn't like the phrase. The phrase had been sold to them as a partisan phrase. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and in Mm -hmm. 2005, there was only 5% difference between Republicans and Democrats on this issue. So that was some very Mm -hmm. intentional work that got people to the point where they saw it as a Democratic partisan phrase. So they were against. Um, By, we started the Evangelical Immigration Table in 2011, which was the broadest cross-section of immigrant and non-immigrant evangelicals working on social justice issue since abolition. So huge coalition everybody was on it. And, and that coalition worked really hard. And by mm. 2013, when we passed in the Senate, but not in the House, yeah. the new legislation, um, roughly 72% of white evangelicals were for immigration reform. Mm-hmm. So there had been an enormous shift yeah. because of the work at the table, which I see as a, as a miracle. And that was mm. spirit led. Yeah. But then now we're at 42%. And the reason we're at 42% is because uh, of two things, I think. And one is that um, fear is an enormously powerful motivator. And I think that there are m- many things that are worth being mm-hmm. frightened of in today's world. I, w- I want to share an mm-hmm. interesting quote with you. Yeah, please. And, but I do want to say before I do that, that I think fear has been misdirected. I think mm-hmm. the anxiety that most people feel is an accurate anxiety about our world, that it makes sense to be frightened. Mm-hmm. And most people are frightened and frightened mm-hmm. people are very easy to manipulate mm-hmm. and to, get, to make them more afraid. Yeah. And then perfect love casts out fear, but fear casts out love. Unfortunately, you know, there's a yeah. moment there where you need to make a choice yeah. whether you're about love or fear. Um, mm-hmm. They don't coexist very well. Definitely. Um, but the quote is about 25 years ago, the president or general secretary of the Royal Council of Churches at the time was Latin American. And he said that over the next 20 years, we're going to see increasing political democracy and increasing economic consolidation of power, economic tyranny. And he said that um, that's going to feel schizophrenic to people, mm-hmm. that they're going to feel more free and less free at the same time. And they're going to feel deeply confused and it's going to make them very anxious. And that in their anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, they will look for demagogues and simplistic answers mm-hmm. and that false religion will obscure this and true religion will reveal it. That was 25 years ago. Very prophetic. I think that people are feeling less control over their lives Mm -hmm. on an international stage. And I think there's reason to feel that. But as Christians, do we live by fear or by faith? Mm -hmm. But I think the call to people to live by faith is not loud enough. Mm -hmm. And and I want to say this because I think that what happens to all of us if we don't watch it, particularly at a moment I think societally we're we're at a moment of civil war, yeah. not with not with consistent violence, but in terms of this, the division in our society. Definitely. And I think that people tend to, on both sides, be creatures of the division, which is the human impulse. And I think when you're when you are coming from your politics first and your faith second, that you weaken the power of your faith. Mm. Even and I say mm. that even when I agree with the politics, mm-hmm. I think that that faith goes has to go deeper 
than that. Mm-hmm. And that you can't call someone to love when you're in the middle of the political. But mm-hmm. calling someone to love is the only, only antidote to fear that I know. Yeah. So, yeah. so I feel like that deeper voice needs to be as loud as possible. And that's why, you know, I spend a lot of my time doing this because I spend most of my time, you know, trying to, to respond to the crisis directly, but I'm willing to talk to anybody anywhere because mm-hmm. I think we have to make, we have to have these conversations. We have to call people to sanity and to a, to, to a sanity that is rooted in the love mm-hmm. of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So I feel like alluded to in everything you just said is, and, the, and these aren't mutually exclusive things, but I feel like we have a, there's a long game here and a short game here. Yeah. The short game is, is the immediate crisis, um, which is multifaceted. There's what's going on at the border. There's what's been the flames that have been fanned uh, by the viciousness of the current administration. There's the motivating crises in the countries of origin, namely South and Central America. But, you know, to your point, you know, different parts of the world, many of which in the, you know, and this sort of gets into the long game are going to be made worse uh, by the advent of global climate change and the increasing effects there. So we have this immediate crisis where, where, you know, we need to make sure that real people are not slipping through the gaps and through the cracks. And yet there is also this, this longer, uh, this, this longer crisis, this longer game alluded to in many ways, as you said, 25 years ago by the former president of the World Council of Churches. And so what clarity can you provide us there as far as, you know, short-term solutions, things that people can be doing, ways that they can be educating themselves for the short term. But then after we kind of name that, let's also talk about that long game and, and long-term, both politically, but then also to your point, spiritually and theologically, what is that long game going to look like? Or need to look like. Those are such great questions. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on an immediate level, I wish I could take your listeners to the border or not just to the border, but to the families that are escaping to, re- to what it is to look a refugee child in the eye. You know, their eyes are hollow. The terror is so deep. Um, I, I just want to tell one little mini story. It wasn't the story I was Please. going to tell, but it's just when I think about this. Um, you know, we we had a pro se clinic because there aren't enough lawyers, right? Yeah. And and of course now this government is adding regulation over regulation over regulation to make it harder. So you know, mm. each case is harder to deal with. But so we were doing a clinic where pro se means people represent themselves, but the lawyers can help coach them and then help them mm. to find lawyers over time. So anyhow, that's what we were doing, and we were we were doing as the churches we were doing the babysitting for the kids so that the parents could be at the pro se clinic. And mm-hmm. I was sitting with a nine-year-old who just arrived and we had a number of little ones and we had this nine-year-old, they were all coloring and the nine-year-old was coloring and she started talking yeah. to me as she was coloring, looking yeah. down coloring like kids do. And she just, it was just pouring out of her and, and I'll say it in English, but she said, pastor, you know, um, so my brother, my older brother, the, the, the bad people, they were hitting him. They were hitting him over and over again. And there was blood coming out of his nose and there was blood coming out of his ears and his eyes. And it was everywhere. There was so much blood. And my mommy took my hand and we ran. We ran and we ran and we ran. We ran for so many days. And we were hungry and we were cold. And we didn't know where we were going to sleep. But now we got here, mommy. She said, Pastor, excuse me. She didn't say mommy. Pastor, she said, now we got here, Pastor. We got here. And then she put her voice down to whisper. She said, and now we're safe. That's what it means to be a refugee. That's the little girl that the administration says, no, you're not safe. You're going back. You're going to Mexico first. And, you know, in Mexico, we have um, strong rumors and we have some evidence that may be truth in them that the Zetas are being subcontracted by the Marasova Truta, right? So people who are actually, who actually qualify for asylum because they're, they have evidence that they're personally targeted as families. That because in our system, you don't qualify for asylum just because there's violence in your streets and you run. You really have to be directly targeted. You know, families who are directly targeted are on the list. And if they go back to Mexico, they're in danger from the Zeta. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, either sending them to Mexico or mm. sending them back to Guatemala, which has now been called the safe country, which it is not. Right. So, you know, it's like I feel like what to follow Christ. You know, what does Jesus say in Matthew 25? Whatever you do to the little girl, you do to him right? There's no equivocating there. So there's a response of compassion is essential, that the church needs to respond with compassion to refugees. And that, you know, compassion and um, being hard-headed are not opposite things. You know, we have very 
hard-headed. We have always since my, since I was young, have hard-headed policies in place about how you vet people seeking asylum. Because there's people that try to game any system, right? Of course there are. But you try to figure out who they are, and then Mm -hmm. you try to respond. In the midst, you have a fundamental orientation of compassion Mm -hmm. towards people fleeing in a a crisis that has been objectively described, Mm -hmm. right? There's lots and lots of evidence about what's happening in Central America. They're not making it up, right? You know, so so you respond with compassion, and and Mm -hmm. and really, it has to be immigrant and non-immigrant churches working together, side by side, so that you exchange hope and passion. You have the exchange of hope and passion that. Sustained mm-hmm. engagement. So you need to uh, need to accompany. You need to educate. So you bring in more and more people. And then when you accompany and educate, people get to the point where they're willing to advocate. You advocate for individual families like Noe Carias, trying to get them out of detention so they can fight their cases, mm-hmm. right? And then you begin to advocate whenever it's possible with our legislative representatives mm-hmm. for them to um, come together around the policies where there's actually a huge amount of agreement about, right? policies that we really for changes that we need in our immigration system Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's sort of the steps the right now steps education accompaniment advocacy done with immigrant and non-immigrant believers and puentes puentes are very important for us puentes are bridge people they're bilingual bicultural millennials we have a lot of them working with us we couldn't do the work without it because working together as immigrant and non-immigrant churches is very hard unless Mm -hmm. you have the support Mm -hmm. of people who can be bridges so you know, the Matthew 25 work is deep work, building deep mm-hmm. relationship and deep bonds in joint mission. And we you know to protect and defend vulnerable people. And so you do that, which mm-hmm. leads you to the point where you have a good, strong group of people that are willing and able to um, work with our legislators yeah. to call them to represent us and to call them to do what God has called them to do, which I call faith-rooted advocacy. So I feel like that's the immediate. That's what we all need to be doing. Um, until there mm-hmm. are enough of us so that we will be heard. And that means educating other Christians. It means engaging people. There's so many different levels, right, of education, accompaniment, and advocacy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that does mean building support circles for asylum seekers and refugees, right, which churches have been doing for 50 years at least, right? Refugee resettlement, maybe 200 years, who knows, a long time. Mm-hmm. But we try to do refugee resettlement in a way that it, we call it justice in the process, that immigrant and non-immigrant churches work together as givers. It's not like the immigrants are the receivers and the non-immigrants are the givers. Mm-hmm. We all work together to mm-hmm. come around these vulnerable families. And so that's immediate mm-hmm. work. We don't have policy. Mm-hmm. We just try to stop the worst of the bad policies right now mm-hmm. because okay. one of the problems with this administration of the many is that this president doesn't operate rationally. So what it means on the, on the bottom level is that what used to happen and I've been working with our political system for a very long time, is that Republicans and Democrats would negotiate with each other until they had compromise. And then they would take that compromise to the president, okay. the president and he would support it, right? If there was enough Republicans and Democrats behind it, he would support it. This president doesn't stay with the same decision two days in a row. Mm-hmm. So it's not possible to have Republicans and Democrats come to an agreement and then have him support it because he's very likely to support it one day and not support it the next. So you can't mm-hmm. come up with any right. good policy, even though we have lots of good long-term policy options on these issues, we can't come up with it. And then beyond that, the level of, of partisan bitter battle, which this administration has, has accentuated, is so intense that people who work across the aisle are seen by people on the other side of the aisle as a traitor. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so... To start with, there's not an incentive to work together. But even if there is, if the because also the other thing about this president is that when he doesn't get his way, even with his mercurial changing way, mm-hmm. he's vicious about taking people mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an example. Jeff Flake is Republican, one of the yeah, best Arizona. Republicans. You know, he had a strong approval rating in his mm-hmm. district. Um, but he's a really strong fighter for the Dream Act, and mm-hmm. the president was for the Dream Act one day and not for the Dream Act another day, and for a third, you know, the president and Jeff Flake went against him, and uh, the president mobilized his troops on the ground, and and Jeff Flake's approval rating went down enough so that he didn't run again, and that's the Flake example, right? Yep. That no people are terrified who are Republicans to come up against the president because they'll take you out. Yep. And not because he just even disagrees with you in terms of a way that can be rationally talked through, 
But he, for him, the whole world are people that are for him or people that are against him, just like a dictator. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was under, I was a missionary in the Philippines under Ferdinand Marcos. I know how a dictator operates. Mm-hmm. That's how they operate. They're a mafia boss. You know, are you for me? Are you against me? It doesn't matter what your ideas are. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether we get, we can't come to a compromise of ideas. So, and I say this with, with great sadness because I am truly horrified by the way that he operates and what it's doing to our democracy. Um, and that's independent from all yeah. questions of Republican and Democratic values or Republican and Democratic perspectives. And I do think he's going to win the next election. So, so, you know, I'm just, I just trust that God is in the midst of us and working with us and through us and outside mm-hmm. of us, just like God did in any yep. one of the darkest periods of our history. And there yep. have been many. So I, you know, I don't abandon our faith. I don't think God abandons us. And I just, we just, put your head down and do the best you can. But in the meantime, there aren't good policy alternatives. There's just stopping some of the worst wherever you can, like the separation of children. And then there's just trying to build the foundation for a time when we will be able to make bipartisan good decisions together. Mm. And then, you know, the larger, larger question you're talking about of, of the this acceleration and consolidation of economic power which, you know, I have a very dear friend who's very, very right wing. And one of the things we absolutely agree about, which is that we're facing a world where working people are in real danger of being mm-hmm. their work being taken over by machines. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's why consolidation of economic power is so is so rampant is because we're moving more and more and more quickly. Everything is accelerated into an age where machines beyond our imagination and we're talking about ai yeah. um, will be doing most of the work and what will happen to meaningful mm-hmm. work for people in that time and how do we move into that time and i think that's the long-term question here really the long-term mm-hmm. battle yeah that this battle is obscuring actually making it hard for us to talk about that but it almost seems as if there is a concerted effort to obscure and to mask some of these things and to kind of keep us you know almost a sleight of hand like watch over here so that you completely yes. miss everything that's kind of going on behind the scenes but really in plain sight over here so a couple of things that I would want to say to you one is that there was this really beautiful testimony christian testimony by they interviewed a woman in El Paso um, you know, they've been interviewing everybody, like grabbing people mm-hmm. on the street. And she was crying because she had lost somebody. And she said, I wish we had known. I wish he had known us and we had known him mm-hmm. because we would have taken him in. Mm-hmm. We would have helped him. He was in so much pain, right? We would have all been together. And, you know, I think that that's so powerful, right? That, yeah, you know, we're all we're all in this together, Right. You know, I do think that, you know, I said I had the experience of like Moses looking into the promised land and backing up in the desert. But why did why did they have to spend another 40 years in the desert? Because there was something that needed to happen in them as a community. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, sometimes a desperate sickness needs a desperate remedy. Right. Mm -hmm. That are we going to finally learn to be a community across all of our differences in the church, even just Mm -hmm. starting in the church? And then going beyond that, you know, that what does it mean for us to come together to face our common challenges? And um, so that was one thing that occurred to me. The second thing that occurred to me is that I can't even listen mm-hmm. to the news most of the time because what I feel like is happening is just immense distraction. Mm-hmm. And I think that this president is a master at distraction, you know, that we have these fights about nothing. We have these fights about not nothing, but small things, small. We have fights about not, not even yeah. small things. That's a better mm-hmm. way to say it. We have fights about symbols. We have fights about symbolic things all the time when real things are happening and we are not paying attention to the real things because of the symbolic things. Mm. So, you know, I, I was sharing about how much people yeah. on both sides don't know anything about our immigration yeah. system. You know, when, yeah. when President Trump wanted to, he was like, we're going to take all the people at the border and we're going to move them to sanctuary cities. Mm. Right. And then the sanctuary cities were like, yeah, move them there. Mm-hmm. It's like, Nobody knows that actually people don't stay at the border for very long at all. They they go to either they get deported or if they're going into processing, some of them are released with ankle bracelets. But if they're released, they're not released near the border. They're released in places where they have sponsors, which could be anywhere in the country. And if they're not released, mm-hmm. they're sent to detention centers all over the country, yeah. not at the border, all over the country. 
and mostly in red areas and mostly way away from cities where nobody can come and find them like lawyers and help Mm. them. So, you know, really, we would have been taking people away from Mississippi and putting them in San Francisco, (laughs) which was not what the president said, but it was also not what anybody on the left understood. Like nobody knew how it worked. Mm. Just immense distraction from the real questions and the real issues. So another one that, I mean, I just remember crying. Huge fight over Confederate statues. Remember that? At the same exact week that huge fight was going on, um, Jeff Sessions reinstituted something, really horrible policy, saying that the possessions could be confiscated of a person who, where a drug, where, where they were accused of, having some kind of drug activity in the house. All the possessions could be confiscated, and this is the rub. And if it was found out later that they were innocent, the possessions would not be returned. That's a very old policy that had been changed, actually changed in the Bush and Obama administrations. Mm -hmm. And it was quietly put back in place that same week. Mm -hmm. Now, what affects black and brown people more? And what got all the attention, right? So the symbolic fight got all the attention. And the actual change on the ground got no attention. And this happens over and over and over again. So that I'm sick at heart. Like, I think the battles that we're fighting are not even the heart of the battle. There's some other kind of battles that, you know, are deeply relevant for our life together. Some of the environmental issues that are being raised, deeply relevant. You know, the car companies were my heroes recently. (laughs) Car companies, you know, because they negotiate with the state of California and a number of other states to not... Mm-hmm. you know, lose as much of the mileage goals as the Trump administration wanted them to lose. That has, I grew up in a part of LA where I never saw a blue sky ever. When I was mm. up. It was grayish brown and I had horrible luck. Mm. And we all got together and we fought, lots of people fought and we got good regulations that mm-hmm. cleaned up air pollution and I can breathe and my daughter can breathe even though we don't live in a wealthy area. Mm-hmm. You know, that decision. Wow. Yeah. That's a fight we should have all been in. But what are you fighting about? You know, <laughs> we are fighting about the president says an outrageous oh. thing and everybody focuses on the outrageous thing he says. We're fighting about symbols when there are real fights all over the place. And so I just can't even listen. The mm. news I just don't even listen. It just doesn't help. But, you know, I think I think all of us need to figure out mm-hmm. because the fact is that the attack um, that's happening in the administration level of bad policies, policies that is, you know, there was a joke in the Hispanic community mm-hmm. that um, that the president had named the head of the DEA, you know, the drug enforcement, and that it was mm-hmm. El Chapo. <laughs> You know, because that's mm-hmm. what he's done. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. put people in charge who want to destroy the agencies. And so who have a lifelong mission of destroying the agencies. And those people are going about destroying the agencies. Oh, you gosh. know, McConnell has been putting in judges as fast as he could. And he's putting judges in our immigration system that know nothing about immigration. They're not immigration judges. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. He's taking oh, them yeah. from other areas of law. These, you know, so we have more in the immigration area than we can fight. We just have to be, what are the most important battles and fight them, right? Yeah. Um, so we're doing that. But I think everybody in the church needs to sort of say, okay, what arena of our common life do we need to bring people together on a bipartisan basis mm-hmm. yeah. to deal with the levels of destruction that are going yeah. on? You know, and and across the lo- all the traditional lines, no traditional lines, because we just really need to deal with that and not deal with, you know, I'm talking about President Trump, but he is a symptom of a deeper problem, right? Mm-hmm. He gets away with he is who he is in the position he's in at this moment in history because of deeper problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the temptation is is to focus on him because he's really what he's so much of what he's doing is a horrible. But really, we have to look at what are the deeper dynamics that are allowing sure. a president Trump to be in his position and to be very likely elected. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And what are those dynamics, and how do we, as the church? You know, God, I think as the church, we tend to make our God way too small. Oh, definitely. You know, that a God of the whole universe, we have the gifts of democracy given into our mm-hmm. hands. I lived under a dictator. The gifts of democracy are precious. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to use every talent we've got to be good stewards. You know, everybody take all the gifts you've got and fight the big battles. Yeah. Fight them in your town. Yes. Fight them in your state. Fight them yeah. with your actual voice. And forget yeah. the, the nonsense going on above your heads. Right. Mm, mm. So when you were talking about the church, as I'm sure you probably know, the Evangelical Lutheran Church voted mm-hmm. um, to be the country's first sanctuary church body. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means to our current situation here in the U.S.? 
So I'm going to say something that might be a little ironic, or I just want to note an irony. Um, as, as somebody who was in the first sanctuary movement, I was a member of a church, one of the first churches in the country to do sanctuary during mm-hmm. Central America. And I was one of the co-founders of the new sanctuary movement. Is I think that the word sanctuary is a code word. Okay. And I think it doesn't help people to come together, mm. except people who are in a certain political yeah, place. That's a good right? point. So I don't think... Don't think it's the most helpful mm. word, but I do understand very well why the Lutheran Church chose to use it. It doesn't mean when they used it as for a denomination what it means historically. Mm. Okay, you know, sanctuary historically it comes out of Numbers thirty-five, and it's mm-hmm. very specifically about giving people a refuge until they can mm-hmm. get a fair hearing, mm-hmm. right? Right. They used mm-hmm. it during the runaway slate, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yep. it's a very concept. It has a very specific meaning. That's not what people who stand up for sanctuary are necessarily doing or saying, including the Lutheran Church, right? Mm-hmm. That they've changed the meaning because what, what they're just saying is that the Lutheran Church will respond to immigrants with compassion and respond mm-hmm. to particularly to refugees, make mm-hmm. a stand for refugees and asylum seekers, that they would be treated justly, right? And right. that the system would work right. well and effectively mm-hmm. and justly, right? And humanely. And that individual churches would help people get legal support or, you know, that would respond compassionately in a wide variety of ways and would try to understand the immigration system and try to stand for a system that would be effective, logical, Mm, humane. You know, they mean these very wide variety of things, right? They use the word sanctuary because Mm -hmm. it's a code word. It's a red flag word. And because the Lutheran church has our history, I'm a Lutheran pastor, as an immigrant church. You know, I'll never forget, I preach in Lutheran churches, and always when I'm talking about refugees, some really elderly white person comes up and says, with a German accent, Mm -hmm. you know, thank you, I was a refugee. Mm -hmm. You know, because the Lutherans, we've always been an immigrant church, we've been a refugee church, Mm -hmm. right? So we understand compassion for immigrants and refugees, and we're also a church that holds grace very high. So, okay, somebody violates the law, yeah, you want to respect the law, but it's not the ultimate yep. value. The ultimate value is grace, right? Yeah. So right. we hold intention, law, and grace. We don't throw law out, but we hold law, intention, and grace, and grace is an ultimate value. So, you know, it's the way of the Lutheran Church saying, this is who we are. We are a church that loves the stranger and welcomes the stranger. We are a church who understands the plight of refugees historically. We're a church mm-hmm. that wants to welcome refugees. We are a church that, that wants to stand against the fear and hatred. I think all of that is beautiful. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that every Lutheran church in the country is going to be sanctuary right. in the traditional sense of the mm-hmm. word. And by using that phrase, they um, actually alienate a bunch of people who are on the other side. But but like mm-hmm. Matthew 25 gets people mm-hmm. yep. to accompany immigrants who would find the word sanctuary to be absolutely repellent because to them, right. it's all yeah. about flouting the law, yeah. right? It's not about compassion. It's not about accompaniment. It's not about advocacy. It's about flouting the law. So it's a red flag code word, but it was, but the Lutheran church wanted to make a really strong statement about everything that I just talked about. And so I understand why they used it. But one of the great ironies is when we did the new sanctuary movement, I couldn't get the Lutheran church to sign up to right, right. <laughs> because of the word, because the word was freaking LIRS out. And LS, the LSS is totally freaking out our agencies who were getting money from the government who were like, no, no, don't advertise the Lutheran church is breaking the law. But, you know, the vast, the truth is that the Lutheran church did not just make a national right. decision to break the law. <laughs> <laughs> the Lutheran Church made a national decision to, to you know, be on yeah. record, standing yeah, up for yeah. right? But, you know, but the word sanctuary for people on the other side is code for violating the law, right? So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, you know, whatever. I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that we made a decision to stand with refugees and to stand in compassion and to stand on our doctrine of grace with refugees and asylum seekers, God bless, right? right. Um, and I, and I do, I do understand that we need everybody right now. You know, we need, we need more radical approaches and less radical approaches and militant and less militant. We need everybody to, from their corner to mm, do the best yeah. that they can. Right. Definitely. But you know, the Lutheran Church, we made a decision. We have a track record right now. We have a trajectory of making strong decisions over about the last 20 years that make the Lutheran Church smaller, that, you know, lose people. And we've mm. made this this history of saying, okay, we're going to make these decisions even though we're going to tell these people. Yeah. And it's just a decision, right? Different churches are going to make different decisions around yeah. this. Some of them are going to go for broader and less militant, and some are going to go more militant and narrower. I think there's a place for everybody in this movement. And the important thing is that we understand that, yeah. all of us understand that, right? 
I love that because I feel like that's what gets us stuck. That's what gets us stuck from not moving forward when we don't believe that there's a place for everybody. We alienate and then again, our focus is on the issue that's not the issue. I just, what I really cry is when we have, and we have this in the immigrant rights movement, Mm -hmm. you end up with these major battles between the radicals and the moderates Mm -hmm. and we forget who the opponent is. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, really, there's a place for really, really, that you need prophets and you need priests and you need pastors and you need, you know, biblically and evangelists. You need need everybody and prophets. Nobody likes to take a prophet to dinner, you know. They're not... I mean, prophets are, that's not fun to be a prophet. I feel for the people I know who are called to be prophets. Mm. I don't think I'm one of them, but I feel deeply for them because it's not fun. Prophets are people who feel with such great intensity what should be that they just have to stand on it and shout it. Oh. You know, I'm an organizer. I'm not a prophet, but we desperately need our prophets. Yeah. But, you know, they get hated all the time and persecuted. So, oh, yeah, definitely. That's all. But, you know, I really try to get my moderate friends to appreciate our prophets, and I try to get the prophets to realize that they actually need the rest of us too. And I do mm-hmm. a lot of work on that. One of the things that is really important also is generationally, going back to you being a millennial, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we need each other generationally too. You know, right, that right. young people are almost always more militant, and that's really important because old people are tired. <laughs> And, you know, so we almost need to respect each other. <laughs> I always say I work with all these young puentes who I just love and believe in and support. Mm-hmm. And even I don't agree with them. But we have a good relationship. They call me the madrina, which is the godmother. Mm-hmm. Because we're just real yeah. straight about with each other that I'm never going to see it the way they see it because I'm 63. And, you know, but we're all needed here. I want them to respect mm-hmm. me and I want to respect them. Yeah, Definitely. And in the end, it's not what you say. I did work with people on the street for years, and uh, we did this homeless peer chaplaincy. And one of our peer chaplains, a man named Jesse Lopez, used to say, I understand that you may knife me in the back. The question is whether you will take me to the hospital afterwards. Mm. <laughs> That's grace, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we need, the church needs to learn grace again, desperately. <sighs> desperately. Yeah. There's a, there's a question that we try to ask everyone as we're usually wrapping up, and it's one that I think you'd be able to give a, a profoundly unique answer mm-hmm. to. And you're a minister, a pastor, you're an organizer and an activist, and so you kind of... And a professor. I'm at Fuller. You forget. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Fuller representing here. <laughs> Actually, I, I graduate in December, and I, I've loved, loved my Fuller education, but I am so ready for a break from school. Yeah, of course. It's been, it's been good, but... Uh, I need to, I don't know if I'll go back for a while. So you exist at the intersection of these different worlds Mm -hmm. that are deeply, deeply complementary to each other, but often, they often speak in different languages. Mm -hmm. And so the question that we always ask people is, today, on the ground, what does the notion of salvation mean to you? I mean, you've you've identified yourself here as as a Lutheran, as an evangelical, these are traditions for which the notion of salvation is deeply, deeply rooted. You know, you're an activist, you're working with the material conditions of people, as well as the spiritual conditions of people. And so amidst all of that and those different intersections, what... So let me, I, I would definitely love to answer that. So in the world that I was raised in, I come from a family without faith. And in the world I was raised in, love and power were opposites. Mm. People who had power mostly weren't loving. Mm. To whatever extent they had power, they weren't loving. Mm. And the people who were loving had no power. Mm. So when I heard the story of the gospel for the first time, I heard the story of suffering love that had ultimate power. And I said, if that has any chance of being true, Mm. I want it with all my heart. Mm. Because I knew that I didn't want to be the guys who had power and no love. And I didn't want to be the people who were victims and loving. Mm -hmm. Didn't like the alternatives. Mm -hmm. So the way of the cross was was life for me Mm. from the Mm get-go. Abundant life and eternal life. And I don't really separate those two. Yeah. I think we need them both. We need mm-hmm. eternal life and a life outside of time, mm-hmm. life in all its fullness with no unfair limits. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's that salvation. And I would say with Luther, there is no other God for me but Christ mm-hmm. Jesus and him crucified. If you don't see it the same way, you don't see it the same way. I'm not yeah. responsible for you. God is bigger than both of us. I just have to live by what I see and mm-hmm. speak what I see. So, and if it works for you, mm-hmm. hallelujah. So 
I'm very much Luther Costum. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, that was a that was a wonderfully Lutheran yeah. answer. I mean, I genuinely mean yeah. that. Anyway. Most of my uh, biggest dead influences are. Yeah, Lutheran. it's you know, I years ago my uh, Christian fellowship in university split in half, and actually, ironically, split in half over me because oh. I was, or I was the trigger because I had started a Christian group, and it was before the time when the major Christian campus organizations um, supported women's leadership yeah. in, a, in a formal way. Mm-hmm. And I, there was an advisor. Mm-hmm. I had started a small Christian group at one of the colleges at UC Santa Cruz, and we had gotten 40 new Christians in a short time, and I was running it. And we had a wonderful Baptist Japanese advisor who was advising me, and I was teaching. And he left, and he was replaced by another Baptist pastor who came in and stopped everything, said that I was in sin, that a woman shall not teach or lead or have authority over me on it me out of my position and said I couldn't teach and you know in a varsity and crew and everybody didn't know what to do because they uh, actually secretly had women doing all kinds of things but they couldn't stand uh, up me so that everything split in half yeah 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 in fact right, it's right. very funny I just saw someone recently from that time who said uh, I said yeah it split over me and he said no we split over biblical inerrancy <laughs> I was like, oh boy. Um, anyhow, but, so it's half, and then there were debates between the conservatives and the liberals, and I was always just in agony because I was like, I just don't go with either of you. I mean, I just, and then there was a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor who was a social justice radical. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Coming out of the depth of his orthodoxy. He was coming out of the depth of his orthodoxy. Yeah. The depth of his love of the word of God. Yeah. And of trying to obey it, right? <sighs> so he was, he was like the alternative voice, and I kept saying, that yeah. you know, and then how can I be Lutheran? You know, my family is is Russian and Mexican. It's like I don't know anything about Germans, right? Like no Germans. Right, right. <laughs> but I was really I love what he said. But I'll never forget specifically there was a battle, sort of about salvation, and uh, the conservative said you have to preach the gospel because if people don't accept Christ, they're damned. You know, in your hands, you have your their blood on your hands, and mm. you have everything you can to get them to accept Christ. And yeah. the liberals were saying you don't have to preach the gospel because everybody's saved, and you know what are you? doing right you're just excluding people Mm -hmm. and the old Mm -hmm. lutheran guys said i preach the gospel because jesus has saved me from sin death and the devil and i am so grateful for it and whatever happens at the end of that is his problem. that's where i can so pastor alexia those people who yeah want to desperately be involved. We have a larger website that we're using larger. We run it as Matthew 25, but it's called ECAS, E-C-A-S-Socal.org. Okay. It's the ecumenical collaboration for asylum seekers because we also involve the Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians nice. in this work. But we're doing a training for people that are interested either in fostering uh, a child that we're trying to reunite the family or mm-hmm. interested in being a sponsor or a host or part of a support circle for a family seeking asylum. Now they can come, it's in Southern California, and they can come to the trainings and we can sign them up for short-term or long-term support. Um, outside of Southern California, uh, there's a lot of different groups working. Nobody's really trying it the way we're trying it with this sort of equal model mm. um, of immigrant and non-immigrant churches. There are immigrant, pure immigrant. There's something called We Care that is actually based in Southern California, but national started Nicaraguans helping Nicaraguans, but now they're helping people from all over. That's all brown people helping brown people, Okay, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's an amazing thing. World Relief is a white-run organization and does do things in traditional ways, but they do really good refugee resettlement work, and they're in there trying to make a difference, and they're all over the country. Mm-hmm. Freedom for Immigrants is a secular group doing this work. It's way too secular for me, but they're doing good work. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so the groups that are all over the country. Um, okay. You know, there's the Interfaith Immigration Coalition and Evangelical Immigration Table are both doing policy work. Mm. And, and the Interfaith Immigration Coalition is trying to figure out models for refugee resettlement. Okay. So, you know, there's a lot of good people doing good work and we all need volunteers and we all need donations. Mm-hmm. So, you, go. you know, do put your hand in. It's not what the, what there's too many people wanting are border trips. Right. Gotcha. You know, I understand border trips. Global Immersion does good work, and we do a sort of unique form of border trip, but we don't have any more energy to do people that we don't mm-hmm. know because uh, we, we, do we do it to change the yeah. hero. Mm-hmm. You know, we do it in a different way. The Puentes run it. But Global Immersion does fine work on, board, on sort of traditional border immersion trips. You know, lots of people just want to go see right. it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's – I'm fine with people wanting to go see it if they're, they're going to do something. But God bless you if you've, seen, if you've not seen and believed. Right. You know, if you're willing to – in yeah. your place where you have people – 
who desperately need your compassion and accompaniment and advocacy, you should just like go call your world relief office mm-hmm. and do it, you know, or your interfaith mm-hmm. immigration coalition. Methodists do great work wherever they are. Methodists are. I fell in love with John Wesley a couple of years ago. I finally mm-hmm. read him and I went, John Wesley, where have you been all my life? Um, he did base Christian communities in the yeah. 1700s in the slums of London, just like in yeah. the BCs, just like the CBBs yeah. in Latin America. But anyhow, the Methodists do really good refugee resettlement and general immigration work. If you, you know, if you don't have a world relief that you relate to, go find a local Methodist church. Yeah. They're probably doing it. You know, they do welcome centers all over mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a lot of good people doing work. They need volunteers. They need people to put their hands to the plow. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a crisis. You mentioned earlier instances historically, you know, in the last decade and, and even more recently, where where policy, political policy, has been has been stifled because really the only people who take the time to invest and to and to reach mm-hmm. out to representatives and whatnot are the people who yeah. are against. And so, are there specific things right now, like specific bills, specific? Um, legislation or anything no what you have to do right now because there's nothing Mm -hmm. we can win right now but the truth is you don't win at the last minute anyhow right what you really need to do is go develop a relationship of ministry you need to go minister to and decide your representatives Mm -hmm. they're your representatives there's somebody in their office who deals with immigration go develop a relationship with that person. And don't pretend you're a policy expert. Just tell them the stories of what you're encountering and say, we have to do something about this. Build that relationship, build that shared knowledge, you know, make them go research. Right. I mean, that's their work. But, you know, be in there saying, this is what we care about. This is the kind of community we want to be. Yeah. We need you to be with us in this. Yeah. You know, and we have seen in the Evangelical Immigration Table, we saw people just be transformed mm, over time yeah. because we, we were in relationship with them. So go be in relationship with your legislator. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'll listen to you when, you know, the local ICE director will meet with, with people of faith, mm-hmm. you know, when they won't meet with immigrant rights groups. Your legislator will meet with you. You are people of faith. You are the church. The yeah. legislator will meet. He'll blow, at least a staff person will meet with you. Right. And staff people are like the family members of a legislator. Like they can get through to that legislator in ways you can't even, yeah. right? So yeah. don't worry if the, the guy himself won't meet with you, you know, or the gal. You meet with the people in the office and get to know them. Mm-hmm. That's really important because there will come a time, God willing, and I believe it, where we will have something yeah. we can pass, yeah. but only if we lay the foundation. Yeah. Mm. Alexia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for, for having such a wonderfully open, real conversation with me. I just so appreciate it. You know, so appreciate your listeners and who hung in there. You know, I, I feel like right now I'm usually very careful. I usually do not have this level of open conversation because I do stand mm-hmm. on the no man's land mm. in the middle of a culture an all-out culture war. Yeah. And so I right. I really know that, that if I was too open, like I don't talk on Facebook about what I think, you know, because yeah. yeah. everybody, you know, the most domestic, the most um, police injuries on the job come from domestic violence. Mm-hmm. When somebody comes yeah. to the house and tries to stop the violence. Right now, nobody wants to stop the violence. Right now, people just want to pulverize each other. They're so angry. And so to actually be saying, no, let's overcome this mm-hmm. in the name of mm-hmm. Jesus. I'm not, I, I would, this is not, it's not going to win me, friends. <laughs> but if there's somebody out there who does need encouragement, who sees it the same, sees it in this way, please be encouraged. You're not alone. Mm. And that's one of the main reasons that permission to be exists, because we want to be a magnifying glass for stories and for true life happenings that can help people know that they're not alone and that there are people like yourself who have this wisdom to share that can say, here's a direction. This is what's happening. Instead of us sitting there thinking, well, we're going nowhere. (laughs) This is hopeless. It's hard, but I don't think it's hopeless. It's really hard. Amen. Nothing's ever hopeless. We believe in it. The God of the resurrection, mm-hmm. nothing is hopeless. And, and I, I want to say that really, you know, I think of the starfish a lot lately. You know, the starfish story that a man was walking on the, the beach and there was a bunch of beach starfish. And he starts picking one up here and throwing it back in the water and one up yeah. here. And somebody says to him, what are you going to do? You know, there are thousands of starfish on this beach. You know, how can it matter to be throwing in, you know, 10 starfish before they die? And he says it matters to the starfish, right? And you know, I feel like every little girl that isn't sent back to die, you know, who gets her day in court and gets a lawyer and gets justice and is able to be safe, yeah. 
immeasurable, right? One sparrow falls from the tree and the Lord cares. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when we see the big picture at the moment, there isn't any immediate hope in a lot of really important ways. But it doesn't mean that there isn't hope we can't see. And it doesn't mean that we don't need to be about the work. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests and the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.